All right. Uh, I love you, brother. Thank you for what you do so very well and so very sincerely. If you guys are bold, uh, try to flip to Habakkuk. (laughs) I should have announced that at the beginning of service, so we could have been looking for it. Um, We don't often do a lot of Bible study in Habakkuk. I've never heard anybody say, you know, my favorite verse is found in the book of Habakkuk. But we're going to look at it today. And I think you may be, like me, amazed at how very relevant this thing is that was written so very long ago. Let me read chapter 1 of Habakkuk. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves, Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar off. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress and they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent When the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? All right, we don't know much at all about this prophet. Um, You know, we have the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, if I were talking to a bunch of uh, worship pastors, I'd make a corny joke about the difference between major and minor prophets that has to do with music, but I won't. So, what is the difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet? The, The major prophets wrote longer books. The minor prophets wrote shorter books. Now, that's not a difference in class system. You don't have the really good prophets who are the major prophets and the little weak prophets who are the minor prophets. It just goes by the length of the book that they wrote. So uh, Habakkuk is considered one of the minor prophets. And really all we know about him is that he was a prophet who wrote this prophecy somewhere around 650 B.C., judging on what he's talking about and what events were occurring at that time. 
Now, this is one of two books in the Bible that is considered a theodicy. Um, the other is Job. A theodicy is the vindication of divine goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil. If you have shared your faith very many times, you have probably come across somebody that says, what about, what about the problem of evil? I mean, if God is good and God is powerful, then why does he let bad stuff go on? And that's a, that's a reasonable thing for people to wonder about. Jason Seville, writing for Nine Marks, explains the problem this way. Countless people have wrestled with the problem of evil, though the most basic philosophical reasoning for this question is often attributed to the Greek philosopher Epicurus. His formulation was basically this. If the Christian God, who is omniscient, that means he knows everything, omnipotent means he has all power, and omnibenevolent, which means he's all good. So if he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, if he exists, then evil doesn't exist. The rationale here is that if God were all-knowing, he'd know about all evil, as well as how to stop all evil. If he were all-powerful, he could stop all evil. And if he were all-loving, he would desire to stop all evil. However, Epicurus observed, evil does persist. Therefore, there either is no God or it's not the Christian God. All right, so that's, we can follow his line of thinking. Obviously, there is a flaw in his logic. He begins with a faulty premise that he is the one that knows what is good. And it's easy for us to do that. We see something and we say, that is a bad thing. If God's good, why would he let this bad thing occur? And so he begins with that kind of arrogant premise that he really knows what is good. The greatest good, though, is indeed whatever brings the most glory to God. God receives glory from things that Epicurus might perceive as being bad. Look at me, real, look with me real briefly in Romans 9, and we'll, we'll hopefully make this a little bit clearer. In verses 22 through 24, Paul writes this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, for which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. So Paul is saying, hey, what if God has allowed this evil to run rampant so that we could see more of his glory and so that more of his glory could be made known to the to the moral universe. If there were never any rebellion, then we wouldn't know about the greatness of God's justice. And we wouldn't be able to worship him for being so perfectly just. But then if he had just been just, then we wouldn't have known about his mercy and his grace. And so as things have gone in his providential guidance, we can see and we can worship God for his grace and for his mercy and also for his justice. Paul had insight that old Epicurus didn't have. We need to study this little book to understand this problem better because I believe that it is a sincere problem for some people and we need to be equipped to give them a reasonable answer. All right, let's flip back to Habakkuk. Now let's look in verses 1 through 4 at his initial complaint. 
He says, well, verse 1 says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And here's what Habakkuk says. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? So you see what he's asking here. He's saying, Lord, there's bad stuff going on and you're just sitting there not doing anything. Why is that happening? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He is saying something is wrong here and your inaction is freaking me out because I don't understand why you're letting these bad things happen. This was written over 2,600 years ago, but I think we can sympathize with this guy, can't we? We see so much rampant, amazing, in-your-face iniquity. We see such open, flagrant rebellion toward God. And I think sometimes we wonder, God, why aren't you doing something about this? When we look at our society today, you've got to wonder when the Lord is going to judge the evil that is so pervasive. Do you see the wicked surround the righteous? I think if you turn on, I think if you look outside or turn on your news or anything else, you see that. Our country faces an unprecedented social and political divide. And do you ever feel like those on the side that you prefer are the only ones that are fighting with a hand tied behind their back because they're the only ones that actually have any concern about the rule of law? I think that we feel that way and it's frustrating. Habakkuk is fed up, and I think we can realize why. Now let's see what the Lord's answer is. First, though, I want us to see that God didn't discipline him. He didn't fuss at him for asking the question. Uh, Now, if you are disrespectful toward the Lord, that's always very bad. Don't ever do it. (laughs) Fear the Lord. Come to him with reverence and respect. But if with reverence and respect, you come to him and you say, God, I don't get it. I think that's okay. I think Job teaches us that that's okay. I think Habakkuk teaches us that that is okay. But let's see what the Lord's answer is. In verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. (laughs) So Habakkuk says, God, why are you not doing anything? And God says, hang on, I got something cooking that you wouldn't believe if I did tell you. Verse 6 says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation whose march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They uh, gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. They pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Now here's a weird thing. Guilty men whose own might is their God. We'll come back to that in a second. But these are not good guys that the Lord is choosing to use in his discipline of his chosen people. God tells Habakkuk that he is doing something and uh, he is getting ready to bring judgment. Habakkuk doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes and he wonders why God is inactive. But God is not inactive, he just hasn't judged yet. Which 
leads me to tell you this, and we, everybody in this country needs to hear this. God's mercy may delay his judgment, but do not let that fool you into thinking that his judgment is not coming. God would not tolerate the rampant idolatry and defiance of his own chosen people. I don't think there's any way that he will overlook the defiance of our nation too much longer. We are in the final stages of a moral revolution. There's a British theologian who laid out uh, the different stages of a moral revolution. His name is Theo Hobson. And here's what he said. The first one is, something that was nearly universally condemned is now nearly universally celebrated. Does that sound like America in 2019? Next, that which was celebrated is condemned. For instance, religious freedom. Those that refuse to celebrate are then condemned. Okay, you see these three steps? And with the moral sexual revolution, we can see these three steps that have taken place so very thoroughly and so very quickly. We have reached stage three in America, and we're a bit behind most of the rest of Western civilization. Judgment is coming, barring a miraculous revival. Let's pray for revival, but let's also work for revival. Our friends and neighbors must hear the gospel in order to be saved. I want you to be thoroughly equipped to tell them yourself, but bring them here and we'll tell them also. So what can you do for your neighbor? You can share the gospel with them. You can also bring them to church where they will hear the gospel. I know that every generation thinks that things are worse than they were when we were kids. You know, everybody always thinks that and says that. But I think we're in truly unprecedented territory now. Wouldn't you agree? One thing about God's answer confuses Habakkuk, though. So let's look next at Habakkuk's confusion. See, God is planning to judge his people by using a people even more unjust than the Israelites. And Habakkuk doesn't understand that. He's perplexed by this. Let's consider this in our context. The wicked and oppressive and godless communist regime of China, for example. They are worse than we are, even though we've gone a long way toward, toward them. All right. Or North Korea. I mean, those are horrible. They're worse than we are. And yet, that makes us think, well, God would never let those people come and defeat America because as bad as we are, we're not as bad as them. But if we'll pay attention to what Habakkuk writes, we'll see that that is not the case. God will use whomever he chooses to. Since we're still more respectful toward God than they are, surely he would never use China or North Korea to be an instrument of judgment on America. That's what we think. But Habakkuk teaches us that God will use whatever and whomever he wants to accomplish his will, even a more unrighteous nation than the nation that he seeks to punish. We better learn this so that we won't be shocked when it happens. In the middle of Habakkuk's confusion toward the knowledge and the character of God, see, he, he understands who God is, and he says God is good, and God is righteous, and God is going to bring judgment. But this seems weird. I don't understand how he would take the Chaldeans and use them to judge us. This doesn't seem in keeping with what I understand of God's character. So he does something very wise, and he, he talks about what he does know about God's character. So let's look in verse 12. 
He's talking to God again. This is Habakkuk. And he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So he, he goes back and he says, All right, I'm a little bit confused, but let me go back and review what I know about the character of God. He knows that God is eternal. He says, Are you not from everlasting? He knows that God is holy. He says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. He knows that God will keep his covenant promise to the people of Israel. He says, we shall not die. Now, individuals may die, but he's saying, you're not going to come wipe out the nation because you promised not to, and you're going to keep your promise. By the way, the people of the United States of America don't have that kind of promise from God. Just want to point that out. And he knows that God is sovereign and can use even the godless nation to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. You see, even the enemies of God ultimately serve God's purposes because that is how big and how great and how sovereign our God is. He writes, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So he says, okay, here's what I know about God. God is good. He's eternal. He's all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He can do what he wants to do with whom he wants to do it. And then in 13, we see, and, and the verses following, we see what he doesn't understand. So in verse 13, he says, "Who, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So he's going, here's, here's the part I don't understand. How are you going to take people that are even more wicked than us and they're going to come and swallow us up? So you see the question here. Um, he says, God, you're holy and awesome. So how are you going to use these bad guys? That doesn't seem in, in keeping with your character. But God can and does work through imperfect and unholy instruments. Actually, he does that every time he works through us, doesn't he? Now, if you're thinking... Well, you who are, we who are redeemed are holy and righteous because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. First of all, thank you for thinking that because that's good. <laughs> and you're absolutely right. But we are, uh, we are forensically made righteous before God. We are positionally righteous before God. But in fact, in the day-to-day, on a Tuesday afternoon, I'm not righteous, Right? <laughs> I am I'm unrighteous in my activity, and I won't be perfectly righteous until I meet Christ face to face. So God does use unrighteous people and even really, really unrighteous people and nations to accomplish what he wants to do. Now, I don't fear China or North Korea. I do fear God. Likewise, for our church, I don't fear community demographics or building repair costs I fear God the solution for our country and for our church is repentance and obedience if things aren't going the way we want them to go we can repent we can fall back in line and the Lord will again be pleased with us now we're blessed to have a voice and a vote in this country and I very strongly urge you to vote but we're a little, we're a few fish in a really big pond when it comes to our nation and our nation's repentance and our nation's policy, right? So 
we should, active, we should be active there. We should be politically active. But we can't fix our country by ourselves. But we here at West Laurel Baptist Church, there's just a few of us. And we can do whatever we want. <laughs> we can decide. You know what? Uh, God says where your treasure is, there your heart is. So I don't feel like I can give a lot of money. But I see in the Old Testament that they were asked for a minimum of, of a tithe. And so if I look at, would I rather be under the law and be giving a tithe, or would I rather be under the covenant of grace? Oh, I'd rather be under the covenant of grace. Well, then am I going to take that liberty and say, well, I'm not going to support the work of the church because I'm under grace? No, I'm going to say, I am more grateful. I am more blessed. I'm going to give liberally to the church. And then you say, well, but I can't because I got bills. I understand, but we need to... We need to obey the Lord and we need to put Him first. Now, if we were not meeting budget and I were talking this way, I would welcome you to think, I wonder if Steve is getting antsy because we're under budget. No, we're fine. We're doing fine. I'm not worried about the church's finances. I'm worried about individual people's obedience. Okay? So, trust the Lord and give to the Lord. Now, here's another one that you hear me harp on all the time. And that is, the Lord tells us to share our faith with other people. So we can decide, you know, I haven't been doing that, but I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to come on November 16th. I'm going to be encouraged and equipped. And then we individually are going to go out and share our faith with people as we go. We're going to share our faith with people that, we, that, that come... I don't know where you see people. You go to the hairdresser, right? (laughs) So the hairdresser, you go witness to them. Um, You know, when I'm sitting there and people are messing with my hair, they want to talk, and you talk back to them, and that's an opportunity to witness. Um, My dentist and hygienist, they want to talk to me, but I can't talk because their hands are in my mouth. But still, we can witness when we're at the doctor. We can witness when we're at the dentist. We can witness when we're at the hairdresser. We can witness when we're at our weekly... uh, um, game of cards we can just do whatever the lord gives us opportunity we can look for those opportunities and seize those opportunities to tell people about what excites and motivates us and that should be the gospel if there's going to be another great awakening in our country it will have to happen in little communities of believers all over the nation so let's do everything we can to make sure that we here at West Laurel are a lighthouse and a beacon of truth here in our community. Small groups of faithful Christians have been used by God to change the world. God can, again, use small groups of faithful Christians to change our society. He can also use small groups of faithful Christians to change the eternity of individuals. So what I'm saying is, guys, we can't get together and all 65 of us or however many there are in here this morning and say, you know what, uh, we're tired of, of rampant bad guys in politics, so we're going to vote them all out. We, we don't have the ability to do that, right? What, but we can change the eternity of individuals around us. That is a massive amount of, of change that we can bring about. I don't mean to sound like this is all doom and gloom. God is on his throne and he can't, he can't be overthrown. He can't be displaced. He can't be impeached. He can't, nothing can happen to God. He's going to rule whether people like it or not. We who are on his side are on the winning side. 
And as I've said, we have nothing to fear from the outside, but we just need to fear God's judgment on our ever-increasingly wicked and rebellious nation. And then we in the church need to make sure that we are not wicked and rebellious, right? We need to do what we're told, when we're told, how we're told, by the Lord. And then we need to be blessed. Now, whether we're going to grow numerically, whether we're going to fill this place up and and have a bunch of young families, I don't know. But I don't think it's remotely impossible because with the Lord, everything is possible. And when he sees people who pray, who humble themselves and pray and beg God for revival and then get out and do what we're supposed to do. You know, guys, when I when I hear um, Dr. J.D. Greer, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, sometimes he'll say that there are two things that get us in trouble. Two things that cause pastors to fall, as a matter of fact. And those are monies and honeys, right? <laughs> you start stealing money, or you start seeing some woman that is not your woman. And so we need to take... Uh, the one of those that is is a problem for all of us, which is the money one. And we need to make sure that we are submissive to God in our money. And then, yes, we need to make sure that we are submissive to God in our in our relationships and in our marriages, which is why we're going to have our young adults uh, go on a marriage retreat here in a couple of weeks. And that's going to be a great thing. We need to strengthen those marriages. And then we need to obey in every other respect. And guys, the, the one that I've never seen done right in my 48 years of going to a Baptist church is that the mass of people actually obey the Great Commission. We're going to change that, God willing. It's going to be a miraculous change, though. Pray with me all the time because this is something only God can do. Pray that God will change us to a people who share the message of Christ. It's a simple message. And we can go, we can, we can work ourselves into a frenzy of saying, oh, but I don't know what to say. Let me tell you what to say. It's, it's, not, it's not that complicated, guys. Just listen to what I'm saying. And you know this. If you're saved, you know this. We have sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in our sin and rebellion, we created a huge problem. Because God said, do this. He's our creator. He gets to tell us what to do. And we say, no, we're not going to do it. Well, the punishment for sin is hell. And so if God did what he would be just in doing, he, would, he could just send us all to hell and be done with it. But in his wonderful mercy, he, he made a way for us to escape that judgment. And that is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life that we couldn't live and to die in our place, a death that we deserve because of our sin and rebellion. And then God is willing, if we will ask him by faith, to take Christ's righteousness and give it to us. And take our guilt and put it on Christ who paid for it on the cross. That's the message that we have. And it's a message of hope. It's the only thing that can really fix people's guilt. You know, I I should have looked up stats, but there are a lot of people that take a lot of medicine because of guilt. Uh, They don't want to think about their guilt. They don't want to feel their guilt, so they take a whole lot of medicine to get rid of their guilt. Uh, Now, there are other reasons to take antidepressants, and don't think that I am am judging you if you do. There are physical and, and mental problems that require these things. But there are a lot of folks that take a lot of drugs because they feel guilty. You know why they feel guilty? Because they are guilty. You know why they are guilty? Because they haven't been forgiven of their sins. 
So guys, we have a message of hope and freedom that we can take to people, and we really need to be taking it to them. So Habakkuk says to God, God, why are you not doing something about all this evil? And God says, oh, hang on, I am. <laughs> I'm coming. Don't, don't wait. You know, don't, don't get antsy because judgment is coming. And he says, I'm going to use these Chaldeans to bring it. And then Habakkuk says, wait a minute, you're going to use people even worse than us to come judge us? And God says, oh yeah. And in the next chapter, we'll see a little more about that. But I want us to understand that guys, on our current path, um, God, would, God would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah if he didn't judge America. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so that judgment is coming. But how do we fix it? Well, we don't just throw up our hands and say, oh, the sky is falling. This, this is terrible. We pray to the God who can fix it. And who can bring revival and restoration. We pray to him who can indeed change the, the way we're headed. You know, when uh, Nineveh, Nineveh heard the, the good news. They heard the, the preaching about God and judgment. You know what they did? They repented. If Nineveh can do it, the United States can do it. But let's talk to the one who can bring it. So we can pray, but also we can share the gospel. And we can have people understand that there is forgiveness and repentance and a way back to God. So let's do what we can do and then leave the, uh, the outcome to the sovereign God that we trust completely.